was young and in my early uh, uh, 20s, uh, I relied on myself. I was, everything came easy, physically, uh, intellectually, educationally. Uh, I just relied on myself. Um, when I got into law enforcement, I had authority. While I didn't abuse it, uh, I was on top making great money. Uh, again, all about myself. Uh, and that's when the Lord got my attention. Uh, I was injured at age 27, and that uh, eventually led to the downfall of my career and I had to retire. Uh, but through all that, the Lord drew me closer. And through that lowest experience, that's when life got good because I met my wife. She was one of my physical therapists. So even in the darkest moments, the Lord will be there for you. When I first accepted Christ, I was sitting on my parents' bed and I just remember praying, like, God, I accept you. Alcohol took over my life um, and 40 years ago, it brought me to my knees and that's where Jesus met me. He met me right where I was at, broken and a mess, life unmanageable. And from there, he made me realize he's always been with me. I just was, I was just too blind to see it. Um, today, I'm still a work in progress, 40 years, and I'm still working hard at pleasing him and doing his will. My spiritual life was like really awakened when I went to uh, a camp with this church, BWC, uh, a couple years ago. And after one of the rallies, I just heard God's voice calling my name. And at that point, I felt like called into the ministry and wanted to become a pastor. And since that point on, my life's been getting better ever since I started giving it to God, reading the Bible more, praying, reaching out to people and being there for them. It's just been really fulfilling and it all came from God. Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you this morning. So glad that you can be here for the worship time. It's a good time to come together on Sunday mornings. Amen? Amen. Amen that's for sure. By the way, I really enjoy hearing uh, testimonies of people who have found faith in Christ and uh, those that are growing in the faith. And I wanted, wanted to thank each of you that were participated in those videos we just watched, also the folks that helped produce them for us. Will you show your appreciation this morning? So this morning, we're continuing our, our Lost and Found series, and we're talking today about the disciples being sent out. And Jesus sent out His 12 disciples. We know their names, and you remember stories as well about some of those disciples. Andrew, Andrew you'll recall, was very, very quick to receive Christ and to accept the fact that He was the Messiah. He was so excited about it, he ran to his, his brother Simon and told him as well, we have found the Messiah. And so Simon came, and then you know his story, how his name became Peter. And uh, Peter was one of those guys that was usually quick to act and quick to speak and sometimes slow to think before he would do either of those things. Maybe you know someone like that. The disciples were, were all together in the boat, but it was Peter who saw Jesus walking and said, let me come to you, and he was the one that walked on the water. It was also Peter who, of course, denied Christ. Thomas was the one that uh, spoke possibly what others were feeling, 
because he didn't believe possibly that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. He said, until I put my hand, until I... But the bottom line is uh, he, he represents, I think, many who had doubts about Christ's resurrection. And, of course, Judas. Judas, he's the guy we love to, to talk about and pick on from time to time. But Judas was the treasure of the group. He's the one that kind of kept the money bag, and he's also the one the Scriptures tell us it would help himself to the money from time to time for his own personal use. And uh, money always kind of was a problem with him, and eventually, as you know, he ended up betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Yes, they were everyday ordinary guys. They really weren't spectacular people at all. Jesus knew them. He knew their He knew their frailties, but he also knew who they could become. He saw what he could do in their lives and the way that they could be used for the kingdom. Let me just break into the sermon this morning about the disciples to talk to each of you this morning. It doesn't matter who you are, how old you are this morning, but the bottom line is Jesus knows you. He really does. He knows each and every one of you. He's aware of your failures and your foibles and your fears. He knows all about that. He also knows the potential that's within you in the way that He can make you to be what you never could have been by yourself, and He knows the way that the kingdom can be blessed because of your involvement. So Jesus sent out His apostles. The word translated in verse 7 there, sending, is apostello in Greek. And it stands for what we would say today as apostles, apostles, those special disciples that were given authority and ability to be able to do what Christ was calling them to do. Now, it's interesting for us to notice that the the disciples were sent out in pairs. Do you remember the joy that you had in school when uh, when you were paired up with a partner? Uh, The teacher decided that part of your grade was going to be up to this individual, right? And so, you know, maybe they weren't your best friend at all, and maybe, I don't know, maybe they were a slacker. I mean, you know, and and who knows, maybe you were the slacker. I don't know. I really don't know any of that at all. But the truth of the matter is Jesus sent out His disciples in pairs. It's definite that they could have covered a lot more territory if they would have gone 12 different ways, but that wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan was that He would send them out in twos. Why two by two? Well, the Old Testament tells us that you needed two witnesses to confirm anything. And so that was important from that perspective. And going out in twos, they could strengthen and encourage one another. They could also provide comfort in rejection because they were going to be rejected. There's no question about that. They could also give counsel, possibly, and make fewer mistakes because of the two of them talking together. They could stir each other up to action when indifference or idleness might take over. But I think one of the most important things that they could do is they could agree together in prayer for various things. Our strength comes from God, but He meets our needs through our teamwork with others. Let me say that again. Our strength comes from God, but He meets many of our needs through our teamwork with others. Chuck Swindoll said it like this. He said, if you're alone, you'll probably turn and run, or you'll try to fight the enemy in your own strength. A faithful partner will say, don't run, don't let your mind go there. A steadfast companion and ministry will offer wisdom when you're out of ideas. Or when you get discouraged, your partner will say, come on, you can make it through this. 
Solomon was a very, very wise man, as you know, and Solomon said two is better than one. Going out in pairs is wise. You know, I've seen some Christians in my lifetime who have decided that they kind of wanted to be the Lone Ranger kind of idea. They were all by themselves. They really didn't want to associate with a church. They were just going to take on the world by themselves and make a huge difference, et cetera, et cetera. And the bottom line is usually Lone Rangers don't last very long. But if you're old enough to remember, even the Lone Ranger had his faithful companion, Tonto. Jesus sent out the twelve in pairs to preach repentance, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick. We could probably reduce all that was said in this passage in just a few words. First of all, travel light. Travel light, verses 8 and 9. Now, there are several ways that you can take a trip. If you, if you want to, you can do it and you can, can use a tent. And I have a very, very special memory of a, of a, of a time that my son and I uh, went on a father-son scouting event. It was great during the day. And then at nighttime, you know, we had the tent set up and we went in, the, in there and had our sleeping bags, just the two of us. There was a movie a number of years ago that came out called A River Ran Through It. Remember that memory? Yeah. Well, anyway, it, it, it started pouring that night. I mean, just pouring. And all of a sudden, we realized water was flowing through our tent. And my son was not happy. Um, his father wasn't happy either. And uh, the bottom line was our, our sleeping bags were soaked. I mean, they were sopping wet. So we took them out to the van, and we jumped in the van, and we discovered very, very quickly that there were two other fathers and sons already sitting in our van. <laughs> Some, when they travel, they decide to, uh, to take a camper. That's a lot more significant. Uh, that's a huge upgrade from a tent. There's no question about it. You can, you can find protection from the elements, and you can find protection from from bears and snakes and other kind of varmints as well. Now, some folks prefer to go glamping. Now, if you're not familiar with that particular term, glamping is camping, but with non-traditional accommodations that include some of the comforts and luxuries that you might have at home. Some folks decide they're going to take an RV when they travel. That's basically taking home with you. I mean, that's basically what it is. I mean, you've got air conditioning, you've got indoor plumbing, you've got electric supply. With the RVs, you've got it all, baby. You've got it all. But for folks that really want to go out there on the edge, you can always try a hotel as well. <laughs> Jesus was clear in his instruction on how the 12 were to travel. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. He told them, take nothing for the journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take an extra change of clothes. So the only provisions they were supposed to take with them was a staff or, or a, a walking stick, which could be used for walking purposes. It could also be used for self-protection in case that was necessary. He also said that they could have a pair of sandals, that they could take one pair of sandals with him. Now, I thought it was interesting when you noticed what he said not to take. He said that they weren't supposed to take any food, no snacks. I don't know about you, but I love snacks personally. There are very few snacks I found that I didn't love. I really enjoy them. No food, no snacks, can't take that along at all. No change of clothes. Lady, did you hear me? Did you hear me? 
one outfit for the entire time. Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that? You'd love that. Okay. All right. No money. No money. No ATM card, no checks, no copper, no silver, no Bitcoin, nothing, nothing. Not even any undergarments. So let me talk to you about that for a moment. So, so back then, you're thinking different. Anyway, um, back then, everyone wore a tunic, okay? That was that, that loose uh, uh, piece of, of clothing that you wear right against your skin. And besides the tunic, then you would wear an outer garment on top of that that would be thicker and possibly decorative. And un unless if you knew specifically when you were taking a trip that you were going to have access to water and be able to wash and also some privacy, you would want to make sure that you took two tunics. But Jesus said, no, I want you to take one, just one. So the bottom line is this. Jesus basically in this passage was telling His disciples, that he wanted them to leave at once, not have any extensive training whatsoever, but instead trusting in God's care for their own resources rather than their own resources. Jesus in this passage said some things without saying some things. You ever done that in a conversation with someone? You ever, you ever have those opportunities where you didn't say everything, but by, you, by what you said, there were some things you didn't say, but everyone understood? Jesus was basically telling the 12, if I can trust you to follow me, then you can trust me to lead you and to provide for you. Let me say that again. If Jesus is saying to his disciples, if, if I can trust you to follow me, then you can trust me to lead you and to provide for you. My friends, that's not just for the disciples, that's for each of us too. The bottom line is, is if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're really attempting to follow Him day by day, then this bears true for you as well. If you follow Him, then you can trust that He will lead you and, and He will also provide for you. Now, that doesn't mean you're supposed to quit your job tomorrow. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't mean that. But what I do mean is this. You may have those areas in your life that freak you out. You may have some things that you're dealing with that rob you of sleep. You may have some of those situations in your life that really you're quite fearful about. And Jesus is saying you can trust Christ to lead you and provide for you in some of those areas. I think secondly this morning that Christ was saying to the 12, think right, think right, verses 10 and 11. Now, hospitality was a very, very common thing in the Old Testament and also the New Testament. In the days of Jesus, hospitality was very, very important. It would not have been unusual at all for a visitor to come into a community into a village, and someone would simply invite them to come into their home and invite them to stay with them and would provide a room as well as food for them. Jesus basically was saying in this passage that the reception that the disciples received from families or from a community would be an indicator of the openness of that village or that particular family to the gospel message. 
Yet people in any place refused to listen to what the disciples had to say. Jesus said, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people for their fate. Jesus made it very, very plain that those who heard the gospel were responsible for what they did with it. The disciples had to be faithful in sharing the good news. They had to be faithful in the whole idea of presenting it. But whatever the people did with it was up to them. The disciples were not held responsible for that. That goes for us as well. We're to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope and the healing that only He provides. But when we share that, we're not responsible for what they do with it. We're just responsible to share. That's what Christ asked each of us to do. The disciples need to be reminded that, that, that they were going to be rejected. They need to understand that rejection was going to be a part of it. It'll be a part of our lives from time to time, too. Because Jesus, in chapter 6, we're in chapter 7, but in chapter 6, Jesus had gone back to his hometown. And the Scripture says in Mark 6, 3, then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas, and his sisters are living right here with us. And the Scripture continues, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. The third thing about this passage I would point out is that they were to talk straight, talk straight, verses 12 and 13. So up until this time, Jesus had, only been, had been the only one who had preached. Jesus had been the only one who had taught. And up until this time, Jesus had been the only one that had cast out demons. They didn't have the authority to do that. And so Jesus was the only one that had done that. And, and Jesus also was the only one that went around healing people. They watched that take place, but they themselves were not involved in that. But that was all about to change. Verse 12 tells us, so the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with oil. The message the disciples shared was something that was very familiar. It was what they had heard Jesus share. They simply parroted what Jesus had said. I, I think a lot of people think that repentance is simply saying you're sorry for what you've done. I'm a middle child. I have an older brother, Don, who's four years older than me, great guy, proud of him. And I have a younger brother, Dwayne, who's several years younger than myself. And so Don and I were basically contemporaries growing up together in the same house. And uh, we would, you know, we'd play catch from time to time, play different things together, that sort of thing. But we also had our disagreements, and uh, our voices would be raised in the house, and um, there were times that we would go at it. Um, we typically would, would wrestle. And I know he was four years uh, older than me, and so I would channel David at times, and I would say, I come to you in the power of the Lord, you know, and, <clears throat> and I know that he took it easy on me. I know, I know that's true. He did. Uh, but, but it would go to a certain point in the house until I think probably my mom said something about, you need to do something. And so my dad would say, hey, hey, hey. So he would call our names, and we'd come down to him. And, and then he'd say, uh, 
He'd talk to us about what we were doing wrong. And then he would say, Donald, tell your brother you're sorry. My brother would say, I'm sorry. He'd say, Dwight, tell your brother you're sorry. And I'd say, I'm sorry. But I knew and God knew and Don knew, Dad knew, my mom knew, anyone listening knew I really didn't mean it. I said it, but I really didn't mean it. There was a famous movie quote from the 70s that some of you might remember. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Yes, yeah, some of you saw that. Okay, all right. So the, the truth of the matter is it's, it's a real emotional type of sentimental saying, but it's ridiculous. Because the bottom line is if you're wrong, you need to admit you're wrong and ask forgiveness, right? Right, right. Tell the person, you need to start asking forgiveness. Go ahead and tell them. Just let them know. You need to start asking forgiveness. Go ahead and tell them. Just right beside you. Go ahead. Let them know. I'd have you notice this morning that repentance is more than just simply saying we're sorry. Repentance is a genuine sorrow for our past sins. It's a genuine sorrow for our past sins. Repentance is seeing that it's our sins that we've committed against Christ and we're the cause of His death. It's not just sins that we've done. Our sins have been an offense to God, an offense to Christ. And so they were really against Him. And, and they were the cause of His going to the cross. They were the reason that Christ laid down His life for your sins. And listen to me, and until and unless you've come to the point in your life where you acknowledge that it is your sins, it is your sins that made Christ go to the cross. It is your sins that made Him die. Until you come to that point, I really don't think you've truly repented. Repentance is a genuine desire to change your conduct. A genuine desire to change your conduct. Yes, so the disciples went out teaching people to repent and to turn to God. It's, it's basically like they're, they're going one way. They're going the wrong way. They're going against God, and, and they're to make a U-turn in their lives, and they're to come back to God. That's the idea there. That's the idea. Yes, the disciples had preached that. The disciples were also given the authority to cast out demons. Now, they'd never had that kind of authority before. And I would just tell you this morning that, a, that an officer of the law has the right, if you've done something wrong, to arrest you. But the only power that they have is not who they are. It's because the state stands behind them and gives them the authority to do that. The disciples also were given authority by Jesus to cast out demons. It was by the power of Christ. Demons are not simply a figment of your imagination. Demons are not something that someone has come up with, an idea to scare people. Demons aren't something that was just in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Demons are real. It's not an illness someone has. There are demons. Just as certainly as there's a Satan and a hell, there are demons. 
The disciples were given the ability to do what they watched Christ do. They preached for people to repent and turn to God. They cast demons out of folks. And they also were able to pray with people for healing, and people were literally healed, anointing them with oil. So does God still answer prayer today? God's afraid of that. Let me ask it again. I'm not sure if it's working this morning. Does God still answer prayer today? Yes. Okay. All right. You're with me. Good. Good. Uh, does God still do miracles today? Yes. All right. It's interesting. The, the George Barna Group does a number of surveys, uh, polls people for various organizations and for churches as well, and they talked about this specific thing. And they talked to people, Americans, and, and they reported back that 51% of Americans believe that miracles in the Bible happened as described. They went on and asked another question and discovered that 67% of those interviewed believe that miracles still take place today. On October 20, 2006, a 53-year-old auto mechanic named Jeff Markin walked into the emergency room at the Palm Beach Gardens Hospital in Florida and fell over from a heart attack. For 40 minutes, that's 4-0, 40 minutes, the emergency room personnel frantically labored to try to revive him. They shocked him seven times with a defibrillator, but he was non-responsive. Finally, the supervising cardiologist, Dr. Chansey Crandall, a well-respected doctor and also a medical school professor, was brought in to examine the body. By this time, Markin's toes and his fingers and his face were already starting to turn black from lack of oxygen. His pupils were dilated and fixed. There was no point in trying to resuscitate him. At 8.05 p.m., he was declared dead. Dr. Crandall filled out a final report and turned to leave, but he quickly felt this, this, this extraordinary compulsion. And the way he put it, he said, I sensed God was telling me to turn around and pray for the patient. He said, it seemed so foolish to me. So he tried to simply ignore it, but he said a second time, he received an even stronger divine prompting. A nurse was already disconnecting the intravenous fluids and sponging the body so it could be taken to the morgue. But Dr. Crandall began praying over the corpse. This is what he said. Father God, I cry out for the soul of this man. If he does not know you, as his Lord and Savior, please raise him from the dead right now in Jesus' name. So then Dr. Crandall, the cardiologist, said to the, the emergency room doctor, he said, I want you to, to try one more time. The emergency room doctor said, I've shocked him again and again. It's not worth it. I mean, he's dead. He's gone. But he complied because of his respect for Dr. Crandall. Instantly, the monitor jumped from a flat line to a normal heartbeat of about 75 beats per minute with a healthy rhythm. Dr. Crandall said this, In my more than 20 years as a cardiologist, I've never seen a heartbeat restored so completely and suddenly. Markin immediately started breathing on his own with no assistance, and the blackness began to recede from his face and his toes and his fingers. The nurse panicked because she thought there was probably all kinds of brain damage done. There was none. There was none. 
Now, in light of the circumstances, natural explanations really are hollow and forced. And they can't account for those two times that God spoke to Dr. Crandall. Yes, that was certainly a miraculous, true story. It happened. God doesn't always choose to heal, but many have prayed for a divine touch, and they've received that. Many here have done that. Remember, my friends, God wants to use you in His world. You can make a difference. You really can. God wants to use the power that you have within you to make a difference to those around you. He wants you to share the good news of Jesus with others. He wants you to be involved in the church to expand His kingdom and make it more and more so that individuals can know Him as you know Him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank You for Your love today. Thank You so much for the difference that Jesus Christ makes in us. Thank You for the hope and the healing that He brings to us, Lord. Father, help us to be quick to share the the reason for the hope that lies within us. Help us, Father, to be quick to share with others the difference that Jesus Christ makes within our lives. Help us to be Your hands and Your feet extended. Help us to make a difference that only we can make for You and for Your kingdom. We love You today and praise You for Your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.